Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Art Holes, the art history podcast with someone who is continually telling his family and friends not to worry that what I say on this show won't get me fired from my actual job. My name is Michael Anthony, and surprisingly, I have not been fired yet. I've updated the episode numbering, and as you can see, we are on the second-to-last episode of the Caravaggio series. And this has been, I've gotta be honest, I think I've been spending way too much time in the world of 1600s Italy. I feel like I started to go a little cuckoo bananas maybe around episode 7 of the Pollock series, and I think that's happening now, and I could not be more thrilled about it. I've come to accept that getting lost in these stories might make for a better experience for everyone, even if it means I have to start having weird dreams about this stuff, which occasionally I do, and this episode, this actually might be my favorite episode of the podcast so far. And maybe favorite's not the right word. Uh, this one's going to be a lot. So let's, let's just do this. Everybody buckle up. When we last left our story, Caravaggio, Honorio Longhi, Orazio Gentileschi, and some poor schmuck named Filippo were rounded up and arrested by the Spiri and charged with criminal libel with a potential life sentence in prison for writing two poems. At this juncture, this tipping point in our story, through the fog of pieced together history and weirdness, we're now seeing sides, opposing sides being formed. It's not the Farnese dynasty versus Medici or the Colonnas versus Aldobrandinis. Those are the games of kings and queens, Marqueses and Marquesas, and this isn't their story. It may be the world occurring around the story, but this is the story of the pawns on the chessboard. It's the story of people living in the artist quarter, struggling to survive and succeed and make their own names for themselves. It's not the people who start wars and defend honor at the invasion of a territory or hostile takeover of a bank or sinking of merchant ships. It's the people who draw the line and demand retribution and legal action when you call them a testicle or get into a giant street brawl because someone thought you called them a testicle. On one side is Caravaggio, Honorio, Orazio, Spada, uh, Prospero Orsi, that whole crew, the French Align contingent, racistly considered to be sexual deviants, and from the region of Europe taxed for their sinful use of butter. Dirty, dirty sticks of butter. Ooh, just slathered all over their food during Lent. On the other side, we have Mao Cellini and Giovanni Baglione, now Johnny Testicle, defenders of the true meaning of art as deemed by the San Luca Art Academy, both of whom I believe were aligned with the families and dynasties that supported Spain at this point. Honestly, it shifts so much depending on who wants what or which war is being fought, it's mind-boggling. Uh, the Spanish being the proud purveyors of olive oil and the dominant power within Italy. The French and the Spanish, of course, represent more than just butter and olive oil, but we are not done with the preposterous conflicts caused between the difference between butter and oil. That whole debacle of a macro, socio-political, and I guess spiritual issue? We're going to get to see the day-to-day -day effects in this episode. We are not done yet with butter and oil. And somewhere, somewhere on the anti-Caravaggio team, though his role is yet to be clear, is another definite supporter of Spain and Felide Melandroni's pimp, Renuccio Tomassoni, the Nooch. The Nooch! The poems about Johnny Testicle and Mao that were being distributed and comically performed throughout the city and just the general outright pummeling of them socially, it may have been the perfect timing with the goal of damaging Johnny Testicle's reputation, yet it couldn't have been a worse time as far as potential repercussions for Caravaggio and the gang. 
Not only was the church and Rome sensitive to people making statements that they deemed to be false because of the Protestant Reformation, but everybody was on high alert in Rome specifically due to a recent trial and public execution that the public didn't exactly support. One of the old dynastic families in Italy was the Cenci family. They were intertwined in everything. They had large estates and land holdings, and they used to be very connected to the church. Uh, one of the Cenci's even got elected pope. He was Pope John X back in the early 900s. However, the Cenci family relationship with the church began to sour when Pope John X was smothered to death shortly after seeing his brother Peter, the Duke of Spoleto, murdered in front of him. As of 1599, the Cenci family had become a long-standing thorn in the side of the church. The patriarch of the family was a guy named Francesco Cenci, who recently inherited a bunch of land around Rome, and he was a complete monster who terrorized his entire family. He beat and tortured his wife and kids, and he enjoyed having sex with his own daughter, Beatrice Cenci, who he kept hostage in one of their castles. Francesco was also almost burned at the stake for sexually assaulting his stable boys and female servants and beating them all until they bled, uh, but he paid a fine to avoid that punishment. After numerous appeals to the church and even to Pope Clement VIII himself, the family couldn't take Francesco's abuse anymore, so Beatrice took action and formed a plan. In early September of 1599, the family sprung the trap, and they dosed Francesco Cenci with opium, and as the opium kicked in and he was passing out, two men that Beatrice convinced to help, uh, one of which was her lover, entered Francesco's room, put a chisel against his temple, and hammered it through his brain. A couple of the sources said it was a hammer and a rolling pin, though I'm not sure that ultimately matters, and then they threw his body over the balcony to make it seem like he accidentally fell. Rome's authorities quickly arrested Beatrice and her stepmother Lucrezia and her two brothers Bernardo and Giacomo as the prime suspects because everybody knew what a piece of garbage that guy was, in part due to the family's persistent begging in every ear they could find for help, and this situation was only a matter of time. The people of Rome went absolutely nuts for this murder and the entire story. It was the Lindbergh baby, Black Dahlia, OJ, it was that level of interest. It's a powerful family, horrifying sexual details, conspiracy, patricide, it was juicy stuff. What really added to the intrigue was the heroine of the story, Beatrice. She was young and pretty, and not only fought back against sexual abuse and protected her family, but she represented the plight of the people, who also felt powerless against the upper class that always seemed to be above the law. Beatrice Cenci was becoming a subversive symbol of empowerment and feminism, and the church could not have that. The governor of Rome, Ferrante Taverna, in epic douche if there ever was one, he couldn't have wealthy people being murdered in a way that riled up the poor, so he oversaw the torture and forced confession by Beatrice, who admitted to the entire conspiracy. The court's ultimate determination was, no matter how just Beatrice's motivations may have been, murder wasn't an appropriate response, even though the family tried everything else and the entire family was found guilty. On September 11, 1599, the public execution of the Cenci family took place, and it was highly attended and not by supporters of what was going down. 
A large platform had been erected by the authorities so everyone could get a good view, and Lucrezia and Beatrice were both beheaded, and the oldest brother Giacomo was torn apart with red-hot pincers. The only member of the family allowed to survive was the youngest son, Bernardo, who was too young to be executed. Instead, the authorities made him watch his entire family be killed, and they kept waking him up with cold water each time he passed out. He was then imprisoned as a slave in the papal galleys. Guys, this is a hot start to the episode. Imagine juggling all of this in your head. This has been a very weird few months. So the main issue was uh, public sentiment wasn't exactly on the Roman governor's side, and people didn't really believe the sham trial and executions were warranted. And after the executions, the crowd lost it, and there were riots, during which seven people were killed. That is objectively a terrible outcome on top of an initial terrible outcome. However, what the church and the Roman governor thought was terrible were the insurrectionist rumors that were spreading as to the church's true motives behind the executions. People believed the entire state of affairs was actually an excuse by Pope Clement VIII and the Aldo Brandini family to take over the Cenci properties, wealth, and to wipe out the heirs of a family that had been a pest to the church. The rumblings were that this young, beautiful girl who only wanted to protect herself and her family was being scapegoated for the justifiable self-defense killing of a monster just so the rich could get richer. Governor Taverna, he knew how dangerous the stirrings of the people could be, so he issued a decree at the end of 1599 that clamped down on people's more creative and subtle ways of attacking the church and the government of Rome. The decree was issued to, quote, Curb the audacity of those who use their pernicious tongues in writing newsletters to various parts, filling their papers with lies and false and defamatory statements in order to damage their honor and reputation under the guise of cleverly written poems and witty epigrams, or libelous prose and publicly delivered satires. Unquote. It was the worst time for Caravaggio, Honorio, and Orazio to have done this, and Mao and Johnny Testicle knew it. They began to formulate their case against the crew a few months after the poem started circulating, and they started with that poor bastard Filippo. Filippo Trisegni was a struggling artist, and he was really more Caravaggio and Honorio's groupie than anything. If this were a movie about cartoon dogs, which, let's be real, this entire story is a Tarantino movie starring a bunch of cartoon dogs, Filippo would be that small, young dog who's always jumping around the older, bigger dogs trying to get him to play. Filippo was also kinda... Uh, dim, I guess is the best word, and he was desperate for attention and any help he could get from people to become a better artist. So Mao came up with a plan, and Filippo was the key. Mao reached out to Filippo and said he would help teach Filippo how to paint shadows, and he loaned out to Filippo a helmet and other studio props. And Filippo was very excited. One day, Mao casually told Filippo that he'd heard about the poems and acted like he didn't think they were a big deal. And Mao convinced Filippo to give him a copy of the first poem, the more explicit one that said Mao had a donkey cock and Johnny Testicle could wipe his own ass with his paintings. Then Mao convinced Filippo to write down the second poem for him. So Mao has the second poem now in Filippo's handwriting. Filippo, buddy, what are you doing? The key lines of that second longer poem, the, the poem that gave Baglioni his Johnny Testicle nickname, were at the very end. Quote, I'm going to stop this humiliation in a minute because I've just got too much material to work with. 
especially if I start on that necklace of gold which you so undeservedly wear around your neck. Because if I am not mistaken, that you should really have had an iron one attached to your ankle. As for all that, Johnny Testicle has said with such passion, well, it can only be because he's drunk, in my opinion, as he ought to be. Otherwise, he'd be a fucked-over cuckold. Unquote. Calling someone a cuck is the go-to insult from an extremely insecure man to an extremely insecure man. Idiots call each other cuck on the internet today, and it's been happening forever. Now that Mao and Johnny Testicle had the two poems, they provided them, along with their depositions, to Judge Alfonso Tomasino, who was the judicial representative of Governor Taverna, the guy who butchered the Chenchi family and said that you can't write seditious poems. Mao's deposition to the court, in part, quote, I was taking a stroll along with the said Filippo, asking him what the painters were saying about the picture that the said Giovanni had done for the church Gesù. And quick aside, that was the anticipated painting that Johnny Testicle unveiled and fell flat and was the genesis for all this. He told me that Michelangelo of Caravaggio, Honorio Longhi, and Orazio Gentileschi, all three painters, had put together some verses against the said Giovanni, and against me since I am his friend concerning the said painting. And so, a few days later, the said Filippo, with fine words, gave me a paper with several verses written against the said Giovanni, which were on a quarter page. Then he wrote the sonnet out for me there in my house, on half page, which I don't remember, and badly begins John Baggage. What's more, he told me that the said Michelangelo, knowing that this Filippo had handed the said sonnets, had warned him to be careful that these sonnets didn't fall into the hands of the said Giovanni, or in my hands, because trouble would be caused. Unquote. Pretty straightforward, uh, describes who wrote the poems and Caravaggio's intent to cover up his involvement. Johnny Testicle, being the main target, also provided his deposition to Judge Tomasino to give cause for the arrests. His testimony, also in part because it was really long, and generally sounding like the status and reputation-obsessed asshat that he was, quote, You should know that I am a painter by profession and have been practicing this profession here in Rome for a good many years. Now it happens that I have gone and painted a picture of the resurrection of our Lord, which is in the chapel of the Church of the Gesù. When they found out about the said picture, which was this past Easter, the said accused were envious because they intended, I mean, the said Michelangelo intended, to do it himself. So this Michelangelo, out of envy, as I said, and the said Honorio Longhi and Orazio, his friends and followers, have gone around speaking ill of me and reproaching my work. In particular, they have done some verses that dishonor and insult me. Mr. Tommaso Cellini told me he got them from Filippo Trisegni, also a painter, and that part of the said verses were written by Filippo in his presence, being those that begin John Baggage and end Your Paintings Deserve Only Vituperation. And the others are those on this quarter page that begin Johnny Testicle and end Otherwise He'd Just Be a Fucked Over Cuckold. I take action against the above name and any others who have assisted or in whatever way they are aware of and found guilty of this fact, asking that action be taken against them as justice requires since the above-named accused have always persecuted, emulated, and envied, seeing that my works are held in higher esteem than theirs. 
Unquote. I can't vouch for the historical accuracy of any crying, but come on. You can tell the parts that truly upset Johnny Testicle just based on what he specifically highlights. It wasn't really that Caravaggio and the guys said he didn't deserve the gold chain. It was that they called him a testicle and said he was a cuck. It's not a good look for Johnny Testicle. You don't want to go down in history being immortalized with those grievances. Yet as funny as the testimony was, it really wasn't a joke at this point. We are past that. They brought this complaint to Judge Alfonso Tomasino, and he and Governor Taverna were not people to be trifled with, and they did not appreciate poetic expressions about balls. Johnny Testicle was a well-connected guy, and now the court had his and Mao's testimonies under penalty of perjury, and they had the poems, one of which was in Filippo's handwriting. Filippo, what were you thinking? This was the quintessential situation that Governor Taverna's decree was designed to prevent against the type of person, let's be real here, that the judicial system actually cared to protect. So the church had to prosecute for criminal defamation and libel, which had a potential sentence of life in prison in the papal galleys. A week later, on September 11, 1603, the Spiri entered Filippo's home on the Via della Croce and arrested him right in the middle of him eating lunch. And that sucks. A nice lunch at home is quite enjoyable. A well-constructed sandwich, maybe a cold beer, it's great. Filippo, this hapless bastard, he just can't catch a break but at least he wasn't on the toilet. Caravaggio was also found that day in the Piazza Navona, and he was arrested. The next day, the Spiri swarmed Orazio Gentileschi's house in the Via Paulina and arrested him. And not only was Orazio arrested, but the Spiri searched his house and found handwritten letters and poems that they would use as evidence against him. Here's some advice, Orazio, and maybe it's relevant to a listener or two. I don't know what you guys are doing on a daily basis. If you've just written and distributed a poem that basically calls a guy a useless nutsack and the punishment for that poem is life in prison, check your house for any incriminating evidence. You know, like other poems. The only person who didn't get arrested was Honorio Longhi. The Spiri looked for him, but he was nowhere to be found. And unquestionably, he was not going to be found by the police. This shouldn't be a surprise to any of us at this point. Honorio is a meringue-loving, hardened criminal, gang leader, and also superbly talented architect. You think he's going to catch a case for this? Please. As soon as shit went down, Honorio got tipped off, and he didn't wait to leave Rome. He left immediately. But don't worry, he'll come back and rejoin the story. In this story, they almost all come back. Even the last episode, when you think nobody else could possibly come back, somebody comes back. While the prosecution prepared its case for trial, Caravaggio, Orazio, and Filippo were imprisoned separately so they couldn't coordinate their stories. Caravaggio and Filippo were kept in solitary confinement in the Tor de Nona, which was a famously brutal papal prison known for its windowless and dank cells that had names like Heaven, Purgatory, and Hell. Orazio was being held at the Corte Savella prison, which was basically falling apart, and it was also the prison where Governor Taverna tortured and forced a confession from Beatrice Cenci. When the court was ready, the trial began. This is actually happening. We're about to have a full criminal trial because one guy called another guy a testicle. The first witness to be called on September 12th, the best chance for the court to build its case was, predictably, Filippo. 
When prosecutors asked Filippo if he knew Mao, he responded, quote, I, I know a painter called Tommaso, but I, I, I don't know his surname. He lives near me on Via della Croce. I usually call him Mao, and I believe he's from Rome, unquote. So Filippo is trying to play stupid, which is appropriate. The court then handed Filippo a note he had recently written to Mao, that note formalizing his request for the helmet that Mao loaned him. This note showed that Filippo knew Mao better than he implied in his testimony, and the court could also match the handwriting from the helmet note to the poem. Filippo, you got worked. He immediately tried to fix the situation. Quote, The said Tommaso is a very good friend of mine who lent me chalks and anything else I needed. Unquote. The rest of the testimony is a rambling mess. He blames some guy named Gregorio Rodolanti, who nobody knew or even heard of, and said that Gregorio Rodolanti was actually the person who wrote the poems. Then he mentioned some other guy whose name he didn't remember, who was a student in either physics or logic. He wasn't sure which. And this unnamed student... He was the one who asked Gregorio Rodolanti to write the poems. There was a guy behind the guy. Filippo's further testimony, quote, After I copied them, I went to see the said Tommaso and told him he ought to be aware that people were speaking badly of him. Then I told him I wanted to show him something that had been written against him, and so I showed him the poem. I spoke to Rodolanti, who said that he had another poem against Tommaso that I think began with Johnny Testicle. It was in a nice style and well-written, but I don't know much about verse. Unquote. Everything that guy just says, bullshit. Thank you. We now have competing testimony from Filippo and Mao about the ultimate source of the poems. The only person who could clear up this inconsistency is Greg Rodolanti. But he couldn't be called to testify because the court couldn't locate him. Nobody knew who the hell he was, let alone where he was. Because Greg Rodolanti probably wasn't a real person. The prosecutors just couldn't prove it. Greg Rodolanti was such a great fake name that even this past week, when I looked up Greg Rodolanti on Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram in a world with 7.5 billion people, I came up with no documented Greg Rodolantis. There should accidentally be like four. It just feels like a guy who should exist. The prosecution then called Orazio Gentileschi to the stand. It was his turn to be a moron. They called Orazio primarily to establish that he was the person who wrote those poems and letters, the ones that were taken from his house as evidence when he was arrested. When asked about the confiscated documents, Orazio said they were written by other people. An engraver named Giovanni Maggi, who lived in the Vicola de Bergameschi, and a guy named Lodovico. We've now devolved in this series to a naughty poet named Greg Rodolanti, who's an odds-on favorite to not be a real guy, and some other guy, maybe named Lodovico, who may or may not have written a letter over 400 years ago that mysteriously ended up at Orazio's house. And it's oddly relevant because some guy named Johnny Testicle got butt hurt and put the wheels of justice in motion because people said mean things about him. And everybody who should be in prison for other things may now go to prison for not a real thing. These are my Tuesdays at 1 a.m. and a work night. It's, I'm reading things going like, who's Lodovico? Who the fuck is this guy now? 
So not only did Orazio say he didn't write any of the stuff that was confiscated, he said he could barely write anything, let alone a full letter. He, he went with a total illiteracy defense. And when prosecutors presented Orazio with the letters, he was basically like, yeah, yeah, you're showing me a bunch of words on paper. I don't do words. I do paint. I barely know my own name because my name is made out of words, not paint. So you've got the wrong guy. I can help you find the correct guy. I just can't write down his name or address for you because, you know, words. The court was getting frustrated at this circus, so they tried putting Mao and Filippo together in the court to see if that would help clear up their conflicting testimonies. Greg Rodolanti actually became a problem because it was now Filippo's word against Mao's. When they were both confronted together, no progress was made. They both stuck to their stories and Filippo said Mao was a liar. On September 13th, the court did in this case what nobody had done before, not even for a stabbing. They forced Caravaggio to testify. We have the full court record that included Caravaggio's actual words beyond just, eh, eh. The transcript of the testimony was headlined, Before His Excellency, the illustrious Alfonso Tomasino, Assistant Examining Magistrate, Michelangelo Mauricio of Caravaggio interrogated under oath by the magistrate. When asked if he knew how he came to be arrested, quote, I was arrested the other day in the Piazza Navona, but I don't know the reason or what the circumstances were. Plausible testimony, considering he's arrested all the time. The court then asks a bunch of questions to see which painters in Rome Caravaggio knew, who he considered to be good, who he considered to be bad, just general questions about random artists. Then the court inquired if Caravaggio thought Johnny Testicle was a good artist. Quote, I don't know of any painter who thinks that Giovanni Baglione is a good painter. The court then asked Caravaggio if he had seen any of Johnny Testicle's paintings. Quote, I have seen almost all the works of Giovanni Baglione. Recently, the resurrection of Christ at the Gesù. I don't like that painting there at the Gesù because it's a bungle. I think it's the worst he's done, and I haven't heard any painter praise the said painting. Of all the painters I've spoken to, no one likes it. Unquote. He's not exactly backtracking on what was said in those poems, and asked if he ever had a conversation with Honorio Longhi or Orazio Gentileschi about the resurrection painting. Quote, I've never spoken to Honorio Longhi about the said painting of the resurrection by Baglione, and it's been more than three years since I've spoken to Gentileschi. The court then asked about the poems. Had he seen them, heard them read aloud in the artist corridor, anything at all? Caravaggio, quote, I have never heard in verse or in prose, in the vulgar tongue or in Latin or in any other form, anything where mention of the said Giovanni Baglione was made. Never have I received information that mention has been made of Giovanni Baglione or the said Mao in verse or in the vulgar tongue, unquote. The case isn't looking great for the prosecution, or Johnny Testicle and Mao. There's conflicting testimony, and nobody's admitting anything. The prosecution decides to take one last shot, and Orazio is called back to testify to spring a trap that was set the last time he was on the stand. Earlier that summer, Johnny Testicle took a pilgrimage to see a religious site in Loretto, the Holy House. The Holy House of Loretto was said to be where the Virgin Mary lived with the wee baby Jesus. And if you're wondering how Mary and the wee baby Jesus came to live in a house in Italy, 2,000 miles away from Nazareth, great question, and sort of a complicated answer. 
The church told everyone that on the night of May 9th or the 10th of the year 1291, angels picked up the holy house from Nazareth, flew it through the air, and brought it to rest in what is now Croatia. On December 9th or 10th of 1294, I guess the angels decided they didn't like that neighborhood anymore, and they picked up the house again, tried a bunch of places around Italy, and then finally decided to permanently place the house in Loreto in 1296. This is one of those second-tier stories that the Protestants called bullshit on during the Reformation and was something that Catholics said was totally true and called it a miracle. I'm not saying anybody is right or wrong. Nonetheless, the Holy House in Loreto meant a new pilgrimage point for Catholics, and that meant souvenirs. So when Johnny Testicle said that he was going to the Holy House in Loreto, Orazio requested that he bring back a few silver figurines of the Virgin Mary, some Loreto souvenirs. But instead of silver figurines, Johnny Testicle brought Orazio back to lead figurines, cheap knockoffs, which pissed Orazio off, and he took it as an insult. So he wrote Johnny Testicle a very terse letter in response. Orazio's letter to Johnny Testicle regarding his lead souvenirs from the magical flying house of Loretto, quote, I am not returning your Madonna figurines as you deserve, but will keep them for the devotion they represent. However, I consider you a man with just about enough courage to buy them in lead. Your other actions have shown everyone all the riches you are made of, and I don't give a hoot about you. I'd like you to do me a favor by hanging some animal entrails on that chain you wear around your neck as an ornament to match your worth. I told you that if you sent me one in silver, I would pay you for it. I would never, under any circumstances, send one in lead to a courteous gentleman, like the ones you see worn on hats. And with this, I take leave of you and return your friendship. And who is saying this to you cannot be a contemptible or dishonorable man. Unquote. Everybody in this story is insane. The letter not only showed that Orazio had motive, hating Johnny Testicle and specifically mentioning that gold chain, but also that he lied about getting confused with words and not knowing how to write. Under cross-examination, Orazio fell apart. The best he could come up with to explain the letter when confronted with it was, quote, It seems to me, uh, yet it doesn't, that I wrote about animal entrails and, and chains, but the handwriting looks like mine. I recognize this letter by my handwriting. It, it's true I wrote about someone who had done something bad and that he faced up to it, but I don't think I've written about chains and animal entrails. It doesn't seem to be in my hand, but I know I haven't written this note in this manner. It is like my handwriting, but I don't know of having written these things. The, the handwriting looks like mine, but I don't think I've written this letter in this way. But it is my handwriting. Unquote. That is absolute nonsense, and Orazio is unequivocally screwed. Now the court's looking to set up Orazio on multiple charges of perjury, which has a potential sentence of death, not only lying about his ability to write, but now they have a letter to compare this handwriting to the letters he said were written by other people. This is not looking good. If they threaten Orazio with execution for perjury, there was a distinct possibility that he might flip and then testify against Honorio and Caravaggio. 
And why wouldn't he? Nobody's that good of a friend that they're going to take a Judas cradle or get hung because of... And just as a quick reminder, all of this, the trial, potentially fake witness or secret mastermind Greg Rodolanti, handwriting analysis, witness testimony confrontations, maybe turning state's evidence because of a perjury charge, all of this is because one man, a grown man, called another grown man a testicle, and that second guy couldn't handle it. This is an exhausting story. And at the most perilous moment of the trial, when things were looking like they could really take a turn, especially for Caravaggio and Honorio too, if they finally tracked him down, at this crucial tipping point, this is the moment that I'm sure everybody was expecting, the moment where I say, and then out of nowhere, the charges were suddenly dropped. On September 25th, 1603, Caravaggio was released from prison, on bail under guarantee of the French ambassador, which hints that maybe Del Monte or even Costanza Colonna had to step in on this one. This was not a low-level feat of diplomacy. As much as the church, Rome, everyone hated subversive poetry about balls, they still needed Caravaggio. Now that the coast was clear, Honorio Longhi made his way back to Rome in November of 1603, and he was not thrilled. He was out for blood over this whole ordeal, and he tracked Mao and Johnny Testicle down and confronted both of them in church during a service at the Santa Maria Sopra Minerva Basilica. From Mao's testimony in a court case we will not be fully getting into, quote, I was together with my friend, Mr. Giovanni Baglione. We wished to hear Mass, and while we were waiting, I saw Honorio Longhi, who was standing in front of us, staring at me. He beckoned me with his head, and I went over and asked him what he was calling me for. He started to say, I'd like to make you swing from a wooden scaffold, you fucking grass. Then, raising his voice, Honorio told me to come outside, and said I was a fucker and a grass, and picked up a stone, saying, Come out, you scum, you grass. Unquote. And then all hell broke loose. Johnny Testicle pulled a knife, a friend of Honorio's punched Johnny Testicle in the chest, and then Honorio followed both Johnny Testicle and Mao to Mao's house, yelling at them and challenging them to a sword fight. And then, this is not over yet, Honorio followed them as they ran errands. Mao went to the tailor, and Johnny Testicle went into the baker's shop that sold wine, bread, and charcoal. The entire time, Honorio was outside yelling at everyone and trying to start a fight. Mao tried on shirts, Johnny Testicle bought charcoal, and they refused to fight Honorio, who was still standing in the street screaming like an insane person. As Honorio was re-establishing himself in Rome as the city's top psychopath, Caravaggio took the opportunity to get out of town and let things cool down. He traveled to Loretto, the place where Johnny Testicle was supposed to pick up those souvenirs for Orazio, and he was researching a painting that he was commissioned to complete for a chapel in the Church of Sant'Agostino, which was to be a depiction of the Madonna of Loretto, Mary in the Magic Flying House. It was one of the few major public commissions he received during this time, but it's a painting that he won't complete for a while. This little road trip to do research was most likely suggested and coordinated by either Del Monte or Costanza Colonna, more to just get him out of Rome. He wasn't much use to anybody if he were put in prison or dead, and this was the closest he'd come to being in legitimate trouble. Things cooled down enough for Caravaggio to return to Rome in the beginning of 1604. He was born in 1571, so this would put him at around, what, 32 or 33 years old. 
He didn't move into anybody's palace or giant protected estate, and I'm guessing it's because people like Del Monte were starting to realize that he was super unpredictable and best kept at arm's length. Instead, he moved into a quaint two-story house in the Vicolo di Santa Cecilia e Biagio, which I guess is now the Vicolo del Delvino Amore. It's just east of the Tiber River, and it had a cellar and a small garden and a courtyard, and he rented it from a nice lady named Prudentia Bruni for 40 scudi a year. Living with him at the time, according to a church census that was taken, a status and a merum, which is, uh, I guess means the state of souls, was his assistant, Chico. Chico living at the house didn't help the rumors about their relationship, but it seems like Caravaggio didn't really care at this point. Now that he's back in Rome, he discovered that his services weren't quite so in demand as they used to be. The first problem was that he was an unstable nightmare of a person to deal with, and everybody knew it. But the second issue was, the church and society more broadly were moving away from the Borromeo-esque severity of the Counter-Reformation. The Council of Trent was over by 1563. The edicts that came out of it had been enforced for 40 years and now things had begun to settle. You can't keep up with that intensity forever. People would burn out. And the idea that the church existed for the poor was starting to fade away a little bit. Trade routes were more stabilized, technology was advancing, and inventions like the stocking frame began the mechanization of the textile industry. It's harder to demand that people live in a Christ-like way and celebrate the dirty feet of the poor when society was finding its footing and getting wealthier. A skeptical person might look at the church's years-long focus on the poor being the heart of Catholicism as a way to stop them from converting to Protestantism, that it was less about the religion and more about protecting their numbers and power. But regardless of the why, people's tastes and sensibilities were changing. The Borromeos of the world were becoming dinosaurs. And in that spiritual battle between the ideals of Borromeo and those of Del Monte, progress was winning. As power began to creep back to the top, the poor weren't seen as something to celebrate anymore. They were back to being a class that had to be paternalistically protected and controlled. And that meant that Caravaggio's art was now out of touch in its celebration of the poor. People were now wanting more of the characteristics in their art that were there in the Renaissance. More ornateness, more grandeur. The church had survived its greatest threat in centuries, and it wanted to celebrate itself now. It didn't want to be so gloomy. When Clement VIII commissioned a bunch of altarpiece paintings for St. Peter's Basilica, Caravaggio was nowhere on the list of artists approached. I imagine he had to be incredibly pissed off as artists he considered to be inferior were getting the most important public commissions. He is also smack in the middle of a creative block, a problem that I think is relatively new for him. The most recent painting he'd completed was done likely around 1603, a bit before where we are in the story. Caravaggio painted The Sacrifice of Isaac, the Old Testament story of God telling Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac to show his devotion. Right as Abraham is about to kill Isaac, an angel stops his hand and Abraham proved his love for God though I'm sure causing irreparable harm to his relationship with his son, who likely never looked at him the same way after that. Caravaggio's depiction of this scene has the same high drama as his other paintings, but it's less severe. It's almost as if he's trying to integrate this dramatic realism with the new demands of the times. There's actually a background in this painting, there's a landscape with trees, a path and some buildings, and a blue cloudy sky. In the foreground, about to be stabbed by Abraham, is Isaac, 
modeled by Chico, but saved at the last moment by a realistic-looking angel. It's a softer background, even though there's still a harsh brutality to the action in the foreground. It, I don't know, there's a weird disconnect. It feels like a Hallmark card meets Old Testament murder, but what do I know? The one thing we can conclude from this painting is it's the last time he'll integrate a landscape or background in his art. Because he's about to fall off the deep end, and his art goes with him. Things get dark, darker than normal. In 1604, after he got back from visiting the Magic House of Loretto for a painting he's not making a lot of progress on, his life begins to unravel. He's isolated, he's fighting an artistic block, he's less in demand for large public works, and he's angry, and he's frustrated. On April 24, 1604, Caravaggio was having lunch at the Osteria del Moro, the Tavern of the Black Moor, and he ordered a plate of artichokes. The artichokes at the Black Moor were served in sets of eight on one plate. Four were cooked in butter and four cooked in oil. This was done presumably to make sure the northern French and Germanic patrons who used butter in their cuisine to make sure that they were just as happy as the Spanish-influenced patrons who preferred olive oil. When the server, Pietro de Fasaccia, brought Caravaggio the plate of artichokes, Caravaggio asked which were cooked in butter and which were cooked in oil because they were on the same earthenware plate. The server testified that he told Caravaggio, quote, smell them and you will easily know which are cooked in butter and which in oil, unquote. Kind of a dick response. Another diner who was there to witness the exchange, a copyist named Pietro Antonio de Medei, testified to what happened next. Quote, Michelangelo took it badly and sprang to his feet in rage, saying, It seems to me, you fucked over cuckold, that you think you're speaking to some kind of damn provincial. Unquote. Caravaggio then took the plate of artichokes and smashed it against the server's face and cut open his left eye. This idea of butter and olive oil was still so important that it continued to be seen as a class distinction. If you were the olive oil type, you were a more urbane, sophisticated Southern European. If you were a butter person, you were that Northern European country folk that ate butter and cheese and didn't have the discerning palate for olive oil. If you couldn't tell the difference, well then you were clearly just a clueless peasant. Caravaggio was so insulted by the butter olive oil comment that he assaulted a server with a plate of artichokes. And I'm sure you will not be surprised to hear that he was let off with only some kind of warning. Just think of how far we've had to come together for the last, what, like, six hours to reach the phase of this story when a grown man hits another grown man in the face with an earthenware plate full of artichokes in public and in front of witnesses because of butter and then totally get away with it. To hear all of that and think, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's pretty extreme, but the logic adds up. Dude talk shit about butter. And more than that, to hear from a witness that Caravaggio called a server a fucked over cuckold before assaulting him with artichokes and be able to connect this event to a poem that he now almost assuredly wrote that used the same phrase in which he called another guy a testicle. All of this somehow makes sense, and it shouldn't make sense at all. We are in too deep. Caravaggio's mood was darkening and he was quick to trigger, and you could see this reflected in his art. In 1604, he painted another version of John the Baptist for a Genoese banker named Ottavio Costa. 
Instead of the gleeful, quasi-sexual, not even quasi, blatantly sexual depiction with young Chico, this John is more dour and brooding, and the light is almost washing the model out like it was painted under moonlight. It's beautiful, but it's kind of eerie. He also completed in 1604 one of his few large public commissions, the Entombment of Christ. It was an altarpiece for the Santa Maria in Valencella Church. That's the church Honorio Longhi's father was in the middle of building before he died, and it was commissioned by a guy named Girolamo Vitrice. If St. Catherine of Alexandria was considered to be the masterpiece of his early career, the Entombment of Christ was the masterpiece of this middle period. This painting was another example of Caravaggio going after the last great artist that shared his name, Michelangelo Buonarotti. Michelangelo's Pieta was a marble sculpture depicting the scene in which the Virgin Mary is holding the dead body of Jesus on her lap after he was taken off the cross. It's a powerful image not only of the death of Christ, but of the pain of a mother losing her son. In Michelangelo's version, though, Mary looks a little young, almost the same age as Jesus. Michelangelo's rationale for this, according to what he told his biographer, Ascanio Condivi, quote, do you not know that chaste women stay fresh much more than those who are not chaste? How much more in the case of the Virgin, who had never experienced the least lascivious desire that might change her body? Unquote. So, sex wrinkles. Ladies, if you're having sex, you're gonna get wrinkles. Everyone knows this. It's science. Caravaggio's treatment of Jesus coming off the cross is less about just mother and son. It's more about the collective anguish of a group of people in response to the death of Christ. And the Virgin Mary is portrayed by a much older woman with a lot more sex wrinkles and has one of those nun headdresses on called a wimple. What controls this painting, the point of focus, is the sheer weight of dead Jesus. He's not idealized like in the Pieta where he doesn't seem to have any weight on Mary's lap. This is the straight up dead body of the fallen son of God. I don't want his mother to see him this way. Look how they massacred my boy. The men, John and some guy named Nicodemus, are struggling to hold Jesus up. John is holding the top half of Jesus, and as he's trying not to drop him, his fingers accidentally slip into the spear hole, and Nicodemus is locking his arms so as to not drop Jesus. And the two women in the painting, one of which is Mary Magdalene, are both visibly distraught. And if those women look familiar, it's because the same model was used for both, Philippe Melandroni. Philippe may not have appeared in Caravaggio's art since, what, 1599-ish? But she was clearly still around and maintained some sort of relationship with Caravaggio. For Philippe to now show up in his art again, in this particular painting, it was a strong public pronouncement to the Nooch that she was spending a lot of time with Caravaggio, but he was probably already aware it was happening. Philippe was now 22 years old, and as of 1603 was living with her aunt and her brother, and she was still a sex worker, but hey, at least she's still alive. On October 17, 1604, after Caravaggio, Honorio, and a bookseller named Gabrielli were done eating dinner at the Osteria della Torretta, the Tavern of the Little Tower, they decided to walk to the Piazza del Popolo. They made it about halfway when they stopped to talk to a courtesan named Menicia Calvi, who everyone called Menichukia. There are conflicting accounts as to what happened next, but somebody started throwing stones at the Spiri that were nearby, who got pissed off and arrested a bunch of them, including Caravaggio. 
Caravaggio denied throwing the stones and said that his arresting officer, Corporal Milano, was always confrontational and antagonistic whenever they met on the street. Corporal Milano said during this particular arrest that Caravaggio called him a, quote, cocksucker, which Caravaggio vehemently denied. While being arrested, he turned to his buddies and said, quote, don't worry, I'll be out tomorrow. About a month after that, on November 18, 1604, Caravaggio was walking along the Chiavica del Buffalo, which was this weird area alongside an aqueduct system, when he was stopped by the Spiri, who requested to see if he had a license to be armed. Surprisingly, he did have a license, which he produced to the Spiri, and right as they were about to let him go, he said, according to the arresting officer's report, quote, Good night, sir. You can stick it up your ass. Unquote. They did not stick it up their ass, and instead of letting Caravaggio go, he was then arrested. And as he was being restrained, he had a freaking meltdown and screamed, quote, You and everyone with you can shove it up your asses. Unquote. So they put him in jail. He is absolutely spiraling at this point. He's living alone with Chico, alternating between periods of painter's block and bursts of productivity, and his lack of productivity and fewer commissions is starting to hurt him financially. By early 1605, he is racking up debts. He's way behind on rent to Prudentia Bruni, his sweet landlady who kept sending him polite reminders that he was past due, which he ignored. The very beginning of 1605 was also somewhat of a calm before the storm in Rome, to the extent Rome was ever calm, but it was about to get worse. Pope Clement VIII got sick in February of 1605, and the way things were looking, he wasn't going to last long, and he died on March 3rd. Anytime the papal seat was empty, Rome was in chaos, not only because the French and Spanish began jockeying for power, but per long-standing tradition, when the papacy was empty, the government was functionally suspended, so all the criminals who were in jail were given blanket amnesty and released. That's a mass release of people who were in jail at once, and they all went to bars to celebrate, and everybody got drunk, and then there was more crime. It was a nightmare. On April 1st, 1605, Alessandro de' Medici was elected, which was a big win for France, and he chose the name Pope Leo XI. History would remember him, however, by the name that everyone called him back then after he died, Papa Lampo, which meant Lightning Pope, because 26 days later, on April 27th, he died after a lightning-quick papacy, and the entire process started up again. Undoubtedly, tensions were still on high and people's nerves were frayed from the last papal election just three weeks earlier. And after Papa Lampo died, the French and Spanish were in full-blown combat in the streets. There were riots that spread from the Piazza della Trinita onto the Via dei Condotti, which I know is geographically impossible to conceptualize without looking at a map, but just imagine a giant city square full of hundreds of drunk, Angry, one bad week away from starving, recently out of jail men, trying to seize continentally influential power, even though a third of them probably couldn't even read. All of that, it can't be contained in a piazza, so it spills onto a different street just to relieve the pressure. Men had swords, bricks, knives, spears with axe heads on the end called halberds, and because gun technology was better and more available to people, there were pistols and arquebuses, which were early forms of rifles. It was a nightmare. 
The Speary had to call in the assistance of another municipal type of law enforcement, sort of like a local chief of police called the Bargello. They had to gather a bunch of officers together and try to restore some sort of order. As soon as they got together and tried to stop the riots, they encountered a makeshift militia of pro-Spanish soldiers who were gathering forces to set a bunch of prisoners free. We don't know if their goal was to liberate their own people or to set free the French prisoners so they could execute them. But what we do know was that leading this band of men was famous soldier Giovan Francesco Tomassoni and his brothers, Alessandro Tomassoni and Renuccio Tomassoni. The Nooch! The Nooch and his brothers led this group to try and reach the released prisoners who were fighting with the Spiri and the Bargello, and they demanded that the police stand down. When the police declined that request, one of the Tomassonis yelled, quote, Leave them here! Leave them here or we'll cut you all into pieces, you fucking pricks! Unquote. And the militia were yelling, To arms! To arms! And then they started beating drums. What is happening? This story is a dumpster fire. The Nooch militia broke through the barriers of the police and took away a bunch of prisoners from the Speary, and they left feeling exceptionally victorious. But they forgot that law enforcement doesn't just go away or forget about your crime because you left an area. And sometime later, the Nooch and his brothers were arrested. On May 29, 1605, Pope Paul V of the Borghese family was elected, who I believe is supported by the Spanish. There was some family connection to Philip III, the King of Spain. Now that there was a pope in office, there would be some much-needed stability in Rome. There would also be the return of nepotism, with the elevation of Scipione Borghese, Paul V's nephew, to the position of cardinal. Both Cardinal Nephew Scipione and Pope Paul V end up being major influences on art moving forward. While Scipione was a fan of Caravaggio's art personally, his uncle Paul V's reign was much more progressive. He wanted to move away from the serious and somber Counter-Reformation tone and into that new ornate and celebratory theme. So while that trend to the ornate had already started, Paul V does make it much more mainstream. On the night of Pope Paul V's coronation, Caravaggio was arrested for wandering around the streets at 3 o'clock in the morning, armed with both a dagger and a sword without a license. Just a little over a month later, he was arrested again. This arrest, on July 19, 1605, was for a crime called Deterpatio Porte, which was door-defacing, against Isabella della Vecchia and her mother Laura. And door-defacing was part of a broader crime, Deader Patio, which was house scorning. Back then, the front of your home and your door were seen as an extension of you. To deface someone's door or the front of their house was a direct attack on the person because you were attacking their very sanctuary. House scorning was almost always done by men, and it usually was done to women who the men felt in some way had slighted them, almost exclusively in a romantic or sexual way. Sex in some capacity was often the root of house scorning. Men would stand in front of the house late at night, screaming insults and singing gross songs, and then they would throw stones or smear blood or ink or manure across the house, and sometimes they would draw big erect penises on the house. That Caravaggio had been committing crimes like this was another red flag for what exactly he's doing at night and why he's getting arrested for all this weird stuff, but we'll come back to that. 
On July 29, 1605, just 10 days later, a man named Mariano Pasqualone, who was a junior notary, walked into the offices of a lawyer named Paolo Spada, bleeding profusely from the head, and a clerk of the criminal court came to take a statement. Mariano said that he was walking along the Piazza Navona with his buddy Rogaseca after dark around 8.30, and all of a sudden, someone came up behind him and whacked him on the back of the head and he fell to the ground all bloody. As for who did it, he said this, quote, I didn't see who wounded me, but I never had disputes with anybody other than the said Michelangelo. A few nights ago, he and I had words on the Corso on account of a woman named Lena who is to be found standing at the Piazza Navona. She is Michelangelo's woman. Excuse me quickly that I may dress my wounds. Unquote. The way Mariano describes Lena, a woman found standing on the street late at night, it's pretty easy to deduce that she was a sex worker, and this is supported by a related arrest report from November 1st, 1604, of a known sex worker by the name of Lena Antognetti, who was out past curfew and was known to work in the area. Something about their interaction pissed off Caravaggio to the degree that necessitated violence. Rocaseca, Mariano's buddy, he came and made a statement too to corroborate the story. He didn't see who it was, but he testified that he saw a man wearing a black cloak unsheathe a weapon and hit Mariano in the head with it and then run off towards Cardinal Del Monte's palace. I think it's pretty obvious here we can reasonably conclude that it was indeed Caravaggio who did this. Many years later, a historian and painter named Gian Battista Passeri gave a little more color to this story, although it's all anecdotal. Passeri said that Caravaggio had some sort of relationship with Lena, and he also used her as a model for Mary in a painting. And it's a good thing this part of the story was told years later, because using a sex worker to model for the Virgin Mary approached that line in the sand of the, the unspoken sex worker artist transaction. The church might not have been too cool with that. Some things, even for the church, were totally off-limits. The way Passeri tells the story, Mariano had a thing for Lena and would often approach her on the piazza. When he found out that she was spending so much time with Caravaggio, he got pissed and did something or said something to Lena that really upset her. So Lena went to Caravaggio in tears and said that some guy mistreated her, and she described him, and Caravaggio immediately knew who it was because he'd seen Mariano a lot on the streets. He told Lena not to worry about it and that he'd take care of it. The next day, which was a Wednesday for whatever that's worth, Caravaggio took a hatchet and hid it under his coat all day waiting for the opportunity if he saw Mario. At around 8.30 that night, he saw Mario on the Piazza Navona, ran up behind him and hit him in the head with the hatchet so hard that Mariano was knocked unconscious and almost bled to death. Now we have two serious crimes occurring around the same time, the defacing of Isabella and Laura Della Vecchia's house and hitting Mariano in the head with a hatchet. The situation was so dire, especially because the testicle trial was so fresh in everyone's mind and he was on a lot of people's shit list, that he needed to call in real support. Costanza Colonna was living in Rome in 1605, and she knew that things were not looking good, given that Caravaggio's hatchet attack on Mariano had a motive and a witness in Rocaseca. 
One of Costanza's relatives, Prince Mark Antonio, married into one of the big families in Genoa, the Dorias. So Caravaggio leaves Rome again, presumably with Costanza's blessing and instructions, and he traveled to Genoa and met up with Costanza's relatives until things cooled down in Rome. Again. While he was in Genoa for a month, the courts in Rome kept holding hearings for all the various crimes, and Caravaggio wasn't showing up because he was in Genoa, so he kept getting cited and fined for contempt of court and for failing to attend hearings. Not only that, but poor old Prudentia Bruni, Caravaggio's landlady, she still wasn't getting paid, so she evicted him and had the courts confiscate everything in his house. With the eviction, the court had to go through and inventory his belongings so they could be used against the back rent. And the way they went about that to be the most complete was to walk through the house room by room and identify goods as they went so they didn't lose track. For all the gaps we have in his life, the lack of detail, the context that needs to be deduced, and the conjecture, we now have a room by room description of what it was like inside Caravaggio's house. So we're going to go through that list and be able to visualize in our minds a walkthrough of the inside of Caravaggio's home in a new but slightly recycled segment of the show I like to call... And now, Michael sits in front of a crackling fire, sips a hot toddy, and reads a legal inventory of goods, a list of personal possessions and such, from a really, really long time ago. All right, let's see here. Oh, and I try to keep the music as time and location appropriate as possible, but I felt like giving a nod to Ruth Kligman. If you haven't listened to the Pollock series yet, one of the people in the story is sexually aroused by Beethoven, especially his forehead, so that's fun. From the notes of the court inventorist. This is the inventory of all the personal property of Michelangelo from Caravaggio. First, a kitchen dresser made of white poplar wood with three compartments and an alder frame containing 11 pieces of glassware, namely glasses, carafes, and flasks covered in straw. A plate, two salt cellars, three spoons, a carving board, and a bowl. And on the above-mentioned dresser, two brass candlesticks, another plate, two small knives, and three terracotta vases a water jug, two stools, a red table with two drawers, a couple of bedside tables, a picture, a small chest covered with black leather containing a pair of ragged breeches and a jacket. Makes sense, everybody said he wasn't exactly fashion forward. A guitar, a violin, a dagger, a pair of earrings, a worn out belt and a door leaf, a rather big table, two old chairs and a small broom two swords, and two hand daggers, and a pair of green breeches. A mattress, a shield, a blanket, a fold-away bed for servants, a bed with two posts, a chamber pot, and a stool. Guys, how riveting is this? An old chest, a maholika basin, which is a glazed Renaissance pottery, and a chest containing 12 books, two large pictures to paint, a chest containing certain rags, three stoles, a large mirror, and a convex mirror. This is captivating. If anyone ever asks you what this show is about, just tell them, I don't know, sometimes it's just a dude reading a list of stuff. Okay, what's next? Three large canvas stretchers, a large picture on wood, an ebony chest containing a knife, two bedside tables, a tall wooden tripod, 
a small cart with some papers with colors. A halberd, which is a two-handed battle axe pole weapon, which must have been a shock to see, and also something very inappropriate for him to be having. And finally, two more canvas stretchers. Fascinating. So all of that stuff that I didn't need to read verbatim, but was oddly satisfying to do and I'm not sure why, was no longer his. Especially a battle axe. What was he planning with a spear-length battle axe? The fines, the eviction, having all the stuff repossessed, those were problems, sure. But the more pressing concern was whether or not some sort of settlement could be brokered with Mariano, the guy whose head he buried a hatchet into. All signs pointed to recently promoted Cardinal Nephew Scipione, who was a huge fan of Caravaggio's art, as being the one who brokered the agreement. Caravaggio was back in Rome on August 26th, and the agreement was signed in Cardinal Nephew Scipione's palazzo. The only documented requirement for the settlement was that Caravaggio had to write a really embarrassing apology letter. I won't read it because it's long, but Caravaggio had to admit the crime. And then he also had to admit that if he hadn't done the sneak attack with the hatchet and they met in a fair fight, Mariano might have kicked his ass. This entire story is dripping with wounded egos. It was around this time that Scipione's art collection started to include Caravaggio's paintings. The first was likely in exchange for this agreement with Mariano and being able to come back to Rome and having a slate cleaned. And that first painting is a bit of a cameo appearance. It's of Saint Jerome, the guy who said you should make friends with people who are so gross that you uncontrollably vomit at the sight of them. He was also a saint that maybe wasn't too clear about the definition of consent, but he was purported to be one of the more intellectual saints, so it was the perfect thing to paint for Scipione. It's a painting of Saint Jerome reading and writing with a skull on top of one of the books, I guess as a bookmark? It's a very studious portrayal of Saint Jerome, and kinda morbid. This painting is a red flag for the dark places his head is at right now. The way Caravaggio treats the light and the shadow on old man Jerome's head and face is the same that he treats the skull. Those two components of the larger composition are connected. It's a, a polite reminder of our own mortality. Cardinal nephew Scipione loved the painting and it only increased the esteem in which he held Caravaggio. This is like having the next iteration of Del Monte or Mattei, only this guy is the nephew of the Pope. Now that Caravaggio's back in Rome, Costanza Colonna seemed to want to keep better tabs on him. He moved into the Piazza Colonna and lived with a lawyer right near Costanza Colonna's palace. However, having that maternal influence nearby didn't help his behavior, nor should it, because he's a grown man and shouldn't need to be mommied, and he nestled right back into the comforts of being a disaster. He was commissioned to paint something for a guy named Fabio Massetti, and we don't know what it was because it was never completed, although Caravaggio did keep the 12 Scudi advance, as well as the additional 20 Scudi advance that he scammed out of Massetti later on. Toward the end of October 1605, Caravaggio was bedridden for a bit. He wasn't sick or anything, somebody just stabbed him in the throat and the ear during a fight. When the police asked him who did it, he replied, quote, I wounded myself with my own sword when I fell down the stairs. I don't know where it was and there was no one there. Unquote. He wouldn't say anything else and he wouldn't even acknowledge that there was a sword fight. He eventually recovers and in late 1605, 
finally completes his commission of the Madonna of Loretto. That's the altarpiece painting for the Church of Sant'Agostino that he was commissioned for, and why he went away to do research in Loretto in 1604 after the testicle trial. This is the magical flying house. It's been about two years since he was commissioned for this painting. It's a little late, but he's been distracted with the trial, his time out in Genoa because of the hatchet attack, artichokes, and falling down those unknown stairs and putting his own sword through his own throat. Most depictions of Mary and the wee baby Jesus in a Loretto scene, historically before this, were either of Mary and Jesus on top of the house being carried by angels, which is kind of weird, or just a simple picture of Mary holding the wee baby Jesus. Whatever the painting was, the composition of it either focused more broadly on the totality of the miracle, or it focused on the relationship between mother and child, a more intimate portrait of Mary and Jesus. Caravaggio's capturing of this scene is of Mary holding the wee baby Jesus, and true to form, it looks like an actual woman holding an actual baby. And they're standing in the doorway of the magic house as two blatantly poverty-stricken devotees are kneeling in front of Mary and the wee baby Jesus. They're wearing rags, they've got the dirty feet, and Mary looks like she's about to welcome them into the house. What was so shocking about this painting to people was that Caravaggio included the destitute peasants as the focus of the painting just as much as Mary and the wee baby Jesus. The painting was received by a lot of people as being a blatant pandering to the poor and a shill for populism, which of course meant that most people loved it because most people were poor. But the rich and the powerful? Not that into it, especially now that the church was pushing for that more celebratory and ornate vibe, and this allowed for more people to be openly critical, other artists, because they knew that the church wouldn't be wanting these kinds of paintings moving forward. That early biographer and contemporary that we couldn't name before, he came to see the Madonna of Loretto as soon as it went up, and he saw that there were giant crowds and the painting was incredibly popular. His reaction to it was, quote, In the first chapel on the left in the church of Sant'Agostino, he painted the Madonna of Loretto from life with two pilgrims. One of them had muddy feet, and the other wears a soiled and torn cap. And because of the pettiness in the details of a grand painting, the peasants cackled like geese over it. Unquote. That contemporary and early Caravaggio biographer might as well finally put a name to him. It was none other than Giovanni Baglione, Johnny Testicle himself. And that's why early biographies of Caravaggio had to be taken with a grain of salt, and modern historians couldn't just take them at their word without triangulating with other sources and records. All these guys were salty as fuck, and they tried to poison Caravaggio's legacy as often as they could. For historical purposes, Johnny Testicle had a right to be jealous. With his conversion of St. Paul and crucifixion of St. Peter paintings at the Carassi Chapel in the Church of Santa Maria del Popolo, and this painting at the Church of San Agostino, Caravaggio's art, enormous paintings, now hung in two major pilgrimage points for people visiting Rome. If he does nothing else, his place in history is already set. The church's goal of bringing new art to the new Rome after it was demolished from that sack in 1527, it was coming to fruition and front and center were monumental groundbreaking paintings by this disaster of a human being.
Even though the church was beginning to move away from what he was creating, there was now enough public sentiment after the Madonna of Loretto to put Caravaggio back in the running for the ultimate prize, the opportunity to paint an altarpiece for St. Peter's Basilica. He's made it against all odds. His second act, his re-emergence, and let's even ignore everything that happened pre-Rome. Caravaggio went from a nobody, painting cheesy paintings with Mario, to this oddly raw talent who captured the seedier side of life, was discovered by Del Monte, and turned into the next rising star, actually fulfilled that potential against all odds, then became a hot mess of a dumpster fire, and now he has this second shot at success that he only got after needing to be saved because he buried a handheld axe in some guy's head, and it's the ultimate commission in all of Europe. St. Peter's Basilica was named after St. Peter, obviously. It's the first pope, Jesus's ride or die, and this is the largest church in the world, to this day still, and it was arguably the most important pilgrimage site for all of Catholicism. It's the center of the church's power. It's its very heartbeat. With the public sentiment on Caravaggio's side because of the Loretto painting, Cardinal Nephew Scipione introduced him to Pope Paul V. Caravaggio is personally meeting the Pope, arguably the most important person in the world. And I know I'm hammering this home, but it's important to understand the cultural, historical, and religious enormity of this. So when he does the artistic equivalent of walking into someone's house and pooping on the carpet, we can get a better sense of why the rest of the story happens. The ground was initially broken for St. Peter's Basilica in 1506. It won't be fully completed and consecrated until 1626, but it's almost done. Pope Paul V was having a few transepts torn down and refurbished, and a transept is, uh, it's like a little cutout area within the basilica. It's kind of like a mini church within the bigger church. Caravaggio was approved by the Pope to paint an altarpiece for a transept that was run by the Confraternity of the Palafrenieri. It's a religious order whose patron saint was Saint Anne, who was said to be Mary's mother and Jesus' grandmother. Again, context really matters here. He started the painting in December of 1605 and presented the painting only four months later on April 8, 1606. That's an incredibly quick turnaround for a commission like this. The painting is called Madonna and Child with St. Anne, and it's also known as the Madonna of the Palafrenieri. It was three meters tall by two meters wide, nearly 10 feet by seven feet. Accompanying the painting was a signed statement from Caravaggio that said, quote, I, Michelangelo de Caravaggio, am content and satisfied with the picture that I have painted for the company of St. Anne. In faith, I have written and underwritten this eighth day of April, 1606. The painting was installed on April 14th, and two days later, it was taken down, put on a mule cart, and driven away. The Order of St. Anne fully rejected it, and they didn't even want it for their separate church in another part of Rome so Cardinal Nephew Scipione bought it for his private collection at a substantial discount. Big coup for the Borghese art collection. Okay, so let's talk about this painting. The Palafrenieri wanted Caravaggio to honor Saint Anne, Jesus' grandmother. Instead, she's treated like a frail old woman, lots of sex wrinkles, and she's halfway hidden in the shadows. The wee baby Jesus, 
up front is very naked, and he's stepping on a writhing snake as a metaphor for the goodness of Jesus triumphing over the metaphor of sin or the devil or something. It comes from Genesis 3.15, something about the seed of Mary crushing Satan under his heel. While this painting may be the visualization of that biblical passage, what was troubling to the order was that Caravaggio made an artistic choice with Jesus's penis. Showing the baby Jesus penis, the, the genus, if you will, was acceptable. It had been done before. It's anatomy. He was human. It's fine. You just weren't supposed to purposely draw attention to it. Caravaggio painted the genus hanging diagonally to the right from the viewer's perspective, aimed at the snake. It's as if Jesus' triumph over evil was so strong that even the genus aggressively aims at evil. It was a bold choice. It was even a bold choice that could be forgiven, ignored, even explained away if that were the biggest gaffe. The final nail in the coffin for this painting being rejected was that he gave the Virgin Mary, who was thought of as the pinnacle of chastity and purity, the mother of God, really, really big breasts. And her cleavage is spilling out of her shirt as she leans down. You can't, you can't put giant boobs on the Virgin Mary and then have people try and pray while looking up at them in the most important church in the world. I mean, I think you can, but the church disagreed. Caravaggio was not thrilled with this rejection, and it's about to get worse. Soon after this debacle, he finished another altarpiece that was commissioned a while back. It was an altarpiece for the Santa Maria della Scala that was run by the Order of the Blessed Virgin Mary of Mount Carmel. This order, I mean, these people loved and revered the Virgin Mary and they wanted Caravaggio to paint one of the core tenets of the Virgin Mary's life and one of the central moments in all of Catholic dogma, the Assumption of Mary into Heaven. This is typically painted with lots of angels and clouds and light streaming, Mary floating into Heaven, and it's idealizing, especially if you're in this particular order, the woman who birthed the Son of God who saved the world. Finally being reunited with her son, a blessed reunion with the woman who had to endear the sadness of losing a child. Mary's death and her assumption to heaven was a revered story. When Caravaggio delivered his Death of the Virgin painting to the Carmelite Order, it was a fiasco, and the Order immediately and unequivocally rejected it. Caravaggio's Death of the Virgin is an image of what it's like when someone dies surrounded by loved ones. There are people in various forms of grief around Mary, people in the background having sobering conversations. It's not the glorious assumption of Mary into heaven surrounded by angels. It's a bunch of sad people surrounding a dead body. And that's how Mary's portrayed. It's the corpse of a woman. It almost looks like she's about to decay, and she's holding her stomach as a, almost a reminder of her lost son. But it wasn't just any woman. It's somebody that one of the Carmelite members recognized as a sex worker, and they freaked out. He had finally crossed the line of what the church was willing to overlook with artists using sex workers as models. When painting the most revered woman in the Bible, in one of the most emotionally complicated moments of the religion, you can't use a recognizable sex worker as a model. It's the Virgin Mary. The church asked Caravaggio for the assumption of the Virgin, and he gave them a dead prostitute.
The model for this painting wasn't Lena, the sex worker who rejected Mariano, and who was actually the model for the Madonna of Loretto and Paula Frenieri paintings. It wasn't Menachukia, it wasn't Anna Bianchini, it wasn't even Philippe Melandroni. That we don't know the name of the sex worker who modeled for this painting is probably more instructive than if we did, because it begs the question, how did he have access to such a wide array of sex workers who were so willing to model for him? This brings the entire story full circle to why Caravaggio was always out so late at night and armed all the time, why he was always wearing urban camouflage, why he was always attacking men at night with sneak attacks, scorning the houses of young women, talking to the sex worker Medicucchia when someone threw stones at the police, and why Mariano described Lena as, quote, Michelangelo's woman. Mariano's statement was very specific when translated. He wasn't talking about the girlfriend of Caravaggio. It was Caravaggio's woman with the implication of property. It is now believed by modern biographers that Caravaggio was not just a painter, but was also a pimp. He was a pimp, which is crazy, but not as crazy as it seems. I mean, yeah, it'd be for sure weird now if... Bob Ross finished a landscape and then got into a Cadillac wearing a, a mink coat and a pair of gaiters and then just cruised the point in the South Bronx. Let's just let's just do something and have a good time. Grab it. Grab the bottom of it. Very gently. Very gently. Pull. There we go. Tiniest of strokes. Gentle. Make love to it. Caress it. I'll grab that. Just tap it. Just tap it. For a time when the boundary between criminal life and everyday society was almost non-existent, this really isn't that surprising. I mean, Honorio Long, he was a gang leader and also a successful architect. Being a pimp would allow Caravaggio to have a steady stream of income when he wasn't getting commissions, and it would also give him consistent access to models. And this also sheds a different light on Caravaggio's use of Felide Melandroni as a model and the portrait he painted of her for her to keep. He wasn't trying to look after Felid and make sure she was taken care of and help her live a life of her own choosing. It was a bribe. He was trying to get her to leave the nooch and come work for him. The rivalry between Caravaggio and the nooch, which is about to come to a head, is now finally coming into focus. They were rival pimps, and the conflict began over who controlled Felid. These two have been flirting with a confrontation with each other for a while now, and it's coming to a boiling point fresh off of two career-altering rejections of Caravaggio's art. He is in a deep spiral, and you know what happens when he gets mad. The evidence points to the conflict between Caravaggio and the Nooch, beginning with the blatantly sexual portrayal of Felid in the St. Catherine of Alexandria and Judith and Holofernes paintings, which we can now see was more than just modeling, but the recruitment of one of the most successful sex workers in Rome. Felid's re-emergence as a model for Caravaggio's painting, uh, The Entombment of the Christ, is a clue that their relationship either continued or restarted, and she either came to work for Caravaggio or he re-engaged in trying to steal her away from the nooch. Either way, the nooch and Caravaggio's disagreement with each other is no longer background static. It is real, it's immediate, and it also had something to do with the nooch's wife, Lavinia. This was more than just a professional disagreement. Caravaggio did something with Lavinia or to Lavinia. We don't know what, 
but we know that whatever happened disgraced the Nooch's family and Lavinia's honor. The Nooch could not let that stand, so he demanded retribution. The Nooch demanded that Caravaggio meet him man to man and settle this once and for all. The date was set. Caravaggio and the Nooch would square off on May 28, 1606. This is happening. This would be settled the way men of this time settled feuds of honor, feuds so severe that they could overcome even men's instincts for survival. They would play tennis. The tennis match was clearly pretext. In the effort to curb violence, dueling was made illegal and punishable by death. But a tennis match that happened to turn into a sword fight was different. Sometimes that happened and you couldn't stop someone from defending themselves. That's why the Spiri were so concerned about fights and violence breaking out on tennis courts. Why they specifically asked Honorio about the nooch after he called that one guy a testicle and started a brawl. They knew a lot of these violent outbreaks weren't random. The Nooch and Caravaggio each brought three men to serve as witnesses and bodyguards to protect the fighters in case anyone stepped in. The location? A remote tennis court in the Via di Palacorda. The Nooch brought his brother and famous soldier Giovanni Francesco and his wife's brothers, Ignazio and Federigo Giugoli, who lined up on one side of the tennis court to witness the defense of the Nooch and Lavinia's honor. Lined up across from them, as Caravaggio's witnesses, were Honorio Longhi, a one-eyed soldier from Bologna named Paolo Aldato, and a guy named Petronio Topa. Everyone was armed, but nobody was allowed to join the duel. And as soon as everyone was set and the rules of non-interference were clear, the duel began. Duels aren't like professional fencing matches, which are controlled and lengthy. They're brutal and they're short. The adrenaline saps your energy, and if people are relatively even matched, whoever tires out first tends to lose. Neither Caravaggio nor the Nooch were wearing armor because that would take away the plausible deniability of the tennis match. So that meant this duel would be deadly as possible. The Nooch and Caravaggio circled each other between the rows of witnesses, striking, parrying, dodging, looking for the opportunity to inflict injury. As the duel reached its zenith, an exhausted Nooch tripped over himself while he was in retreat, and Caravaggio saw his opening and he lunged to strike. Not at the Nooch's vital organs, not at his heart, not at his throat or his face. Caravaggio saw his opening and he lunged straight for the Nooch's balls. He was gonna try to cut the Nooch's balls off. Castration was a statement wound, like a sfregio across the face, and it was so common that there was a set fine of 200 lira if you cut off somebody's testicle, the equivalent of one tongue or four teeth. 
As Caravaggio stabbed at the Nooch's balls trying to castrate him, Giovanni Francesco Tomassoni couldn't take it anymore. And as the fight came towards Giovanni, he jumped at a line and he swung his sword and hit Caravaggio in the head, breaking the rules of engagement to save his brother's life. And then chaos. Petronio Topa draws his sword and clashes with Giovanni Tomassoni. Honorio Longhi and that one-eyed dude named Paolo jump in. And as they joined the fray, everybody's swords were out and other people were getting stabbed and slashed. This is tennis mayhem. The Nooch's brothers-in-law see an opening in the violence and dragged him away so that he couldn't get hurt anymore. Somehow there's enough of a pause in the anarchy and everybody fled the tennis court. The Nooch's brother and brothers-in-law struggled to carry him as quickly as possible to the barber surgeon in the Via della Scrofa to dress the wounds. The Nooch was bleeding a lot. When they got there, the barber surgeon looked down at the Nooch and saw that Caravaggio had just narrowly missed the balls. But in missing his balls, Caravaggio hit the Nooch's femoral artery, a near impossible wound for a barber surgeon to fix. There was nothing that could be done. On the night of May 28, 1606, right there on the dirty barber surgeon's table, the Nooch bled out and died. He left behind a young daughter named Felicita, a name that translates in Italian to happiness. The story of the duel, the Nooch's death, it spread like wildfire through Rome. This was beyond a French ambassador's power, beyond Del Monte's ability to sweep things under the rug, and Caravaggio had to have known that. He got his wounds dressed, quickly grabbed some belongings from the house he'd been staying at, collected Chico, and headed to the only person who he thought would help him. The person who saw Caravaggio grow up, whose children were breastfed by his aunt, Margarita Aratori, and who was also kept sane by Margarita when she threatened to kill herself because of the life she was forced into. When he'd already taken so much from so many people, he decided to use that sentiment and leverage an intimate relationship and take one more thing he didn't deserve. He brought Chico with him and went to Costanza Colonna to ask her to put herself at risk and defy Rome. Within a few days of the Nucha's murder, Costanza Colonna had organized Caravaggio's escape, and before he could be arrested, Caravaggio was whisked out of Rome. Holy shit! I'm not even going to do the end part of the show. I'm about to pass out in my living room closet right now. I will catch up with everyone in our next and final episode of the Caravaggio series.